Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Been a long time. It has been a long time. I think we're at about two months since episode 14, which might lead you to believe that this will be a monster episode in which we catch you up on the entire summer and the first week of the U.S. Open. But on the contrary, this is going to be sort of a speed round episode since we have other things going on in our lives, etc., etc., etc. So this is going to be a half-size episode of about 30 minutes, and we're hoping to come back with you on Friday before the semifinals of the U.S. Open and have more to say to you then for a bonus. Be- before the men's semis, yes. Before the men's semis, yes. Um, so... Thanks for coming back with us after the long delay. I've been traveling in Southern Africa, and I'm actually coming to you from South Africa as we speak, but fortunately there's a a good enough internet connection here that I can talk to Carl and get this recording in the books. So, Carl, there's a lot of tennis to cover here, and I know we're both chomping at the bit to talk U.S. Open, tons of interesting stuff happening in New York this week. But first, I want to just catch up on the summer, and... This is largely going to fall on you because when I was in Madagascar and Mozambique and Lesotho, I was not getting daily tennis updates. But I did notice some interesting things, especially on the men's side in these two Masters events in Montreal and Cincinnati. We had Alexander Zverev winning another Masters title, which came as a pretty big surprise to me, taking out Federer in the final. And we had Grigor Dimitrov finally break through and win a Masters title of his own over Nick Kyrgios. Um, now the the Cincinnati final, Carl was was the city Cincinnati draw rather was was pretty weak. Federer pulled out. Um, how big a deal do you think this is for for Dimitrov? Is this is this sort of a, a something he lucked into, or or do you think he's going to be a factor in Masters events over these next few years? I think a little of both. He, you know, if you look at who he beat, he had a seven seed, first of all, despite an 11 ranking, as per a website called TennisAbstract.com. So seven seed meant he gets the bye. And he beat good players, but no one who, for instance, has won a Masters. He beat Lopez. Uh, then he beat Del Potro, a guy who it's kind of shocking to realize has not won a Masters, given that he's won a major. He beat Sugita. He beat Isner. And then he beat Curio. So guys who have made Masters finals, have won one major, who may win many Masters and majors in the future in the case of Kyrgios, although he's really been struggling with injury and, and other issues this summer. But nothing that made me say, oh, wow, Grigor could take out Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic in back-to-back matches. And I still name those three, even though they're all in their 30s, because they've all just been towering over Grigor during his career. Now, you look at someone like Sam Querrey and what he's doing right now at the U.S. Open when he did Wimbledon, who knows, maybe Grigor will just keep getting better, but he's not a young player anymore by any reasonable standard, so I'm not expecting him to break out. It's also easier to say this in hindsight because he exited early and disappointingly at the U.S. Open, so you know, normally you want to see some evidence from him and from Zverev, who won in, in Canada, of they can back this up in a major. And Grigor lost meekly in straight sets in the second round to Rublev at the U.S. Open. More evidence that that next generation is still going to have a much better overall career, collective career than Grigor, Raonic, Nishikori at all. 
Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned Zverev there. As I, I said, Zverev won the, the Masters in Montreal. He actually did have to beat Federer to do it, but he didn't have the toughest draw before that. I mean, he got Denis Shapovalov in the semifinals, and Shapovalov has been a great story in reaching the, the fourth round of the U.S. Open as such a young player. Uh, but on the other hand, as, as semifinal opponents in ATP Masters ago, not exactly top drawer competition. So yeah, and, and Zverev, you know, Zverev's um, two two signature wins, Federer, Kyrgios, in that tournament. Signature is a silly word there, but you know what I'm saying. His two biggest wins uh, were against guys who were not at their physical peak. I mentioned Kyrgios was injured. Federer looked bad for the first part of the match and then looked injured and bad for the second part. I'm not saying Federer would have won otherwise, but we didn't see any proof that Zverev is going to live up to the hype that people created right after that match because he had won in Rome beating Djokovic soundly in the final, but he's still done nothing at a major. And again, with hindsight, I can say that confidently because he lost in the second round to Borna Cioric at the U.S. Open. Yeah, it, it, there are a lot of question marks still with Zverev, and it, it is interesting projecting, thinking through the next five, ten years of men's tennis, because as you point out, we have this generation that hasn't really accomplished much with with Dimitrov and Nishikori at all, and the younger generation looks more promising. We're even talking about somebody like Rublev, who's not even in the top 50 yet, but Zverev looks like this huge future star. But as you say, you don't want to put a huge amount of weight on this Montreal title. You don't want to put a huge amount of weight on the Rome title because I mean, this was hardly peak Djokovic he took out to win that tournament. And he hasn't done anything at majors. And he's he's really tall compared to past number ones. I mean, he has succeeded on clay. He does seem to move better than a lot of the other guys at his height. But... I wrote something on, on Tennis Abstract this morning with some, some basic facts about, about how people perform at various height levels and noted the, the, the piece of trivia that we've never had a number one men's player above six foot four. And Zverev is taller than that. Even at six foot four, you've got Merit Safin, who was number one for nine weeks. Nobody else, even six foot four, has been number one. So Zverev has a lot to overcome. And it is very encouraging. I think that he's won those two Masters titles, especially on, on different surfaces, doing it so young. But still a lot of question marks there. And as you point out, he didn't do anything to dispel those questions by losing to Borna Toric in the second round of the U.S. Open. Yeah, uh, a couple of quick notes. For your follow-up, I'd love to see a chart of weeks at number one cumulative by height. That would You'd probably have to do a log scale on the y-axis, but I think that would really demonstrate just how... How di- how different the number of weeks at six one let's say is to six four. Also, we've talked about Shapovalov and Zverev in Montreal. Both had great tournaments. Both, I think, had to save match points in the first round. And Zverev saved a match point basically by Gasquet pushing the ball for twenty shots before Zverev on his twenty first put it away. So you know we're talking about fine margins even for those breakouts. Shapovalov also had two straight wins in that tournament where. His opponent won a higher percentage of return points against Nadal and Manorino. So he's been more he, he's been more convincing, I think, at the U.S. Open by qualifying and reaching the fourth round and losing a really close fourth rounder where I think, ironically, the opposite happened, where he won more return points as a percentage. But anyway, my point is more more evidence needed. Yeah, definitely. And and just in case you were worried as listeners that we were going to abandon our hobby horses from the first 14 episodes, I promise you we will bring them back. And one of those is that it, it, it is so tough for for players who rely heavily on a serve to 
to win these best of five matches and to consistently string a lot of wins together. And that's essentially what we've seen with Shapovalov. He can get lucky. He can make a deep run. I mean, we've seen Isner do that at Masters before as well. But on the other hand, if you don't break serve, you can't count on always winning matches. And that, as, as you point out, Carl, Shapovalov did play very well in that fourth-round match against Karina Busta. But on the other hand, it was three tie-breaks. If all you're going to do is push your opponent to tie-breaks, then maybe you will get lucky. Maybe you will make a couple deep runs, but you can't rely on that if if your ultimate hope is to win a major. It's just, it, it, unless you're Goran Ivanisevic and you get lucky a time or two, that's it's just not going to work that way. And that's one of the big points against these guys who are 6'5", 6'6", or, or taller, that has, has held those guys back from having the sustained success that they need to become number one. Yeah, and you had a post on Tennis Abstract earlier this year by Wiley Schubert-Reed about the this question of how much does height help and past a certain point does it help, and, and he really found that the two 6'6 guys who in the last decade have won majors, Del Potro and Chilich, they each won one at the U.S. Open, and during those runs, they had amazing returning runs. So I think especially with Chilich, we think of him as serving people off the court, but he didn't have to play a tiebreak in his incredible last eight sets or so or nine sets at that tournament against top competition because he was breaking them. He was just returning with ease. Um, that, that I think, is, is going to be the missing ingredient. Zverev is a good returner, but I think he would need to be better to live up to his hype. Shapovalov, while you're right, he had to play three tiebreaks. He's six feet, so I think he has maybe a better chance, at least based on height, of being a premier returner. Wow, that's idiotic of me. I was convinced he was a lot taller than that. I think it's just because of the shaggy hair. And, and, and he's really that. skinny. That's probably it. Yeah, so I, yeah, that's, that's boneheaded of me. But that's good to know. It's in, encouraging that we're not just facing a, a generation of giants who are going to take over tennis. Um, so let's switch over to the women as sort of a segue into the U.S. Open. Our two premier winners, um, actually I guess Stanford's a premier too. I get, always forget about that one. But um, focusing on Cincinnati and Toronto, in the case of the women, we had Alina Spitalina continue her great season, uh, winning up in Toronto, and then Garbini Mukurusa won in Cincinnati, absolutely destroying Simona Halep in the final. Um, and both of them had a shot at number, well, still have a shot, actually, at number one coming out of the U.S. Open. Mukurusa is sort of the leader in the clubhouse, but unfortunately she is in the clubhouse, having lost to Petra Kvitova. Spitalina is still in the draw, and could, uh, with a couple more wins, end up number one. Um, Carl, I think what you, one of the things you wanted to talk about coming into this was the, the Muguruza-Kvitova match that just happened last night, actually. But just to think about Muguruza in general, I was surprised that she came through and, and won that Wimbledon title um, a couple months ago. Do you think that, that Muguruza could become a, a, a legit number one, like a seven or eight majors type of career? She's not quite 24, so I think it's possible. I think it's encouraging that she's now won two, uh, beating a Williams sister both times on a, on a surface that that, that that Williams star was, was great at. It wasn't Serena's best on clay, but she's won some French Opens and is still probably the best player in the world on clay. Uh, and the, the knock on her was, well, where's the overall evidence? Where Where is her consistency? I think before she won... In Cincy, she had basically not won. She'd won as many non-majors as majors, something crazy like that. Um, so, I, you know, I think that it's encouraging that she 
at least didn't bow out really early at the U.S. Open, as she's sometimes done at majors, especially since winning that first French Open. Uh, she lost to Kvitova, hitting incredibly aggressively and well, like, looking like the two major, the two major, two-time major champion that she is, and uh, really to her aggressive best. And and the first set was incredibly close, so you know it's not a total letdown, but. The draw after that match was kind of there for Garbine's taking. I mean, there are many great players left, but Sharapova was out. Serena Williams isn't playing. Azarenka isn't playing. Uh, it was certainly an opportunity to back it up and to clinch number one instead of needing other results to be assured of it. So, um, it's I, I, again, I need more. Like with the young men, I, I need more evidence. I mean, it was just such a letdown the way she played in the 12 months after the French Open and never cited any sort of physical reason for it. It was always just the burden of being a major champion. If that's always a burden, then mathematically it's going to be hard for it to get to seven or eight if she always needs at least 12 months in between titles. Yeah, I didn't think about it that way, but that, that would become a problem. I mean, I've always been a little bit skeptical just because it, whenever I've watched her play, she looks like a solid player, someone who could be a perennial top five-ish type player, maybe win a couple majors. And I, I've been surprised that she's been able to put together the runs she has. Like, I I didn't see the Wimbledon title coming at all, uh, and I certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have expected her to put together that, that beatdown of Simona Halep in, in Cincinnati. And here she is at, at number one. So it, it, as we've discussed... Again, well, she may never actually get there, but yes, she, she is the favorite now to be number one. That's true. I guess the odds are probably against her a little bit, but yes, you're right. But I mean, if she's here now, she has a lot of time with those Wimbledon points in the book and the Cincinnati points in the book. So even just a good fall after this could probably push her over the top, depending on on a couple other women. But but yes, I mean, she she's already exceeded what I would have set my expectations for her at. So it will be interesting to see how far she can go. And let, let's talk about Kvitova then. Just, just well. before we transition, I, I have a different yeah. take when I watch her, and maybe it's just recency bias and the fact that I did see the Wimbledon final, but I think when she is playing confidently and, and hitting cleanly and moving briskly, she, she can seem just outright dominant. I think she had moments of that in the French Open final, but more so this Wimbledon final from five all in the first set, I think, basically winning the last, maybe she, maybe she was down 5-4 even, she was facing set points, she saved them, and from that moment on, I mean, you could see a number one in her for sure, and you know, it's part of one match, although it is against a seven-time major champion, Venus Williams, but her serve when it's on is, is a real weapon in a way that it isn't for a lot of her other competitors for number one. Uh, she's great from both sides, I think she's got some skills at the net, and she's had some double success. To me, she's a pretty complete player, and one with a lot of power, so and she moves pretty well, so I, I, I think the tools are there. Yeah, the the tools are there, and I think that you're right to say that many of those tools are are far and away above some of her competitors. But there are a handful of women who are in that category, and I I would put Petra Kvitova there as well. Although Petra is the extreme of someone who can just roll over you. Um, Maybe the 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 an, an example with more upside in terms of, of forecasting Muguruza's career is Venus Williams, who can can also just play dominant for a set or two. Uh, even at age 37, she can do it, but she's done it her whole career. Where You can see her sometimes where she has trouble even putting her service toss in the right place, but other times well, she will just, just bowl over an opponent for a set or two. 
and you're right, we have seen Muguruza to do that. The question with those players, which another another player who fits in that category right now is Yelena Ostapenko. The question, look, forecasting a player like that is, are they going to be able to sustain that for any length of time? And for Kvitova, in her career is obviously still midway along as well, but she seems to me like the type of player who will retire with two or three slams. And it would be great if she won more, but with that type of inconsistency, it's tough to see her putting together seven straight wins that often. And I had always put Muguruza in that category as well. Um, and as you say, she's she's still young. She already has the two. Um, it, it seems like the potential is there for her to transcend that. But like I say, it, it, I've been pleasantly surprised pleasantly surprised already. Have you already established, I forget, have you established that the more kind of aggressive and winner or unforced player, unforced error a player is, the more inconsistent their actual results are? Because it's not obvious to me that would be the case. No, I haven't. And it, it's it, it's not obvious to me either, especially, and I, I know it's based on what I just said, it sounds like I'm, I'm taking it for granted, and maybe I am. Uh, but... But no, you you can at least anecdotally make the argument either way, I think. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about is that the top men for so long, other than Federer, and even Federer is is a, one of the best defenders. He's just not as good as, as Mario Djokovic and Nadal. But they've all, um, they're all fairly consistent, don't hit that many on four stars. Again, Federer probably being the outlier. Uh, he's on the aggressive side, but not to the extent of like Kvitova or Venus. Um, and they're also have incredibly consistent results, but I'm not sure that the two are, are correlated. And at least the way I construct the reverse argument is the more aggressive you are, the more you take your fate into your own hands, the more uh, you're, you're limiting the number of factors that can affect the result. So it may seem like, oh, she's hitting herself out of the match, but at least her opponent doesn't have much say in it. Yeah, that's certainly true. And what's frustrating to me as a Simona Halep fan is is watching people take the racket out of her hands. That's essentially what we saw at the end of the French Open final against Ostapenko. I haven't watched the Cincinnati final against Muguruza yet, but I have to imagine that's what happened there. Uh, and it, it, it'll be interesting to see how far Alina Svitolina could climb, because in, in, in this metric of aggression score, Svitolina and Halep are very similar, and they're... Their playing styles aren't identical, but in terms of how they win points, the, the length of points, the amount of aggression, it, it's it's in the ballpark. And Svitolina seems poised to go one step further than Halep has been able to go. But at the same time, she's we would have said the same thing about Halep three years ago. So it would be interesting to see if Svitolina does run into the same problem where if you have to play these these players who can just take control of a match and you don't have the resources to, to reverse course... Uh, Maybe it is difficult to actually get through and win a slam, to become number one, to achieve all these things that players like Kvitova and Muguruza and others have managed to do. So a few other things on the U.S. Open before we run out of time for this week. Kvitova, I know we've, we, just to complete this segue, I mean, it's such a huge win for her to, to be getting this far in a slam, not that far removed from um, from her surgery and the, her attack and then surgery and recovery that she only came back at the French Open. Uh, this was her biggest opponent in Mugurus and definitely her biggest win of the year. Uh, her next opponent then is another person I've already mentioned, Venus Williams. And before I ask you about this match, Carl, between Petra and Venus, I have to point out this crazy scenario. I, since I'm not following this super closely in all the 
Twitter talk and everything, I didn't notice until this morning that there's five Americans still in the draw and the possibility for an all-American semifinal. I mean, it, it, I, I can't imagine we'd put it very high in the odds, but it is possible you'd have four American players as the four semifinalists on the women's side. But let's start with Petra Venus. Um, how do you see that one playing out, Carl? Do you, think, do you think Venus has a shot at another slam here? Oh, for sure. I mean, she's three wins away, so I, I've got to give her a shot. She's also made two finals this year, and she played well, I thought, in the Australian Open final and played well for half of the Wimbledon final and was playing uh, 23-time major champion Serena Williams in the Australian Open final and, two, and now two-time major champion Muguruza, three-time major finalist in the Wimbledon final. And this Kvitova match, I think, at least on those sort of abstract terms, looks like the toughest match she'd have left. If she wins that, and it's, it's to me, kind of a toss-up, uh, Stevens and Savastava, neither of them have made a slam final. Stevens is having an incredible summer and could certainly continue her surge all the way to the title, but I, w- I don't think I'd favor her in that match. And then the other side of the draw, you don't have uh, any major winners. You have Pliskova, who's made a major final, and, and then a lot of players who've shown promise and, and some who, who haven't really ever done anything close to making a major final. So I, I you know, I could certainly see her run ending tomorrow but i also could see her winning this title and it would cap an incredible year and leave her only 100 points shy of number one yeah i I did notice you tweeted something this morning uh, about the the women's race for number one and that prompted me to look and discover that even though venus is down at even in the live ranking she's number seven or number eight i think number eight and she's seated number ninth in the u.s open um if she wins, she'll be number two, which that alone is, is outstanding. But the fact that she'll be within striking distance of number one is even more amazing for someone who's had the, the career she has at the age she is. Um, you spoke mostly about the bottom half and mentioned all these not as qualified names in the top half. Um, we've got Pliskova and Svitolina, as you mentioned, who are in the race for number one. Um, who's your pick coming out of the top half? I mean, somewhat lazy, but I, I think Pliskova, I mean, she hasn't looked overwhelming here at all, but she probably has the easiest fourth-round matchup in Jen Brady. Now, watch Brady upset her, and Pliskova almost lost to Gibbs, who's less qualified earlier in the tournament. But Pliskova should win that match, and then Vandeweghe Safarova. Safarova also has made a major final, but is is not at her peak. Vandeweghe is doesn't really do much better than Pliskova. They, they have similar styles, but I think Pliskova's better at most things. And then in the semis, I think Keyes or Svitolina would be the toughest opponents. But uh, again, with, with Keyes, I think Pushkova does most things better than her. And Svitolina, I think Pushkova could hit her off the court. But, I, you know, I don't feel strongly about that. I think uh, I, I wouldn't give Brady, Kasatkina, or Kanepi a very high chance. But the other five, I think, all have plausible cases. You're really saying you don't give Kanepi a very high chance of re- reaching the final of the U.S. Open? I give her a pretty good chance right now of reaching the quarters, but yes, no, not a very high chance. It is out, uh, just amazing. I knew she had been out injured, but I just kind of always assume if someone pops up in a tournament like this, then they must have been out there winning some 50Ks that I just didn't hear about. But Kanepi really has come out of nowhere. I mean, she's, she's played 125K, which she won back in June. She played qualies at Wimbledon, qualies in Bucharest, which she lost in the first round. She won a 15K in July, and that's it. So 
that that's her her season and here she is in the fourth round of the US Open which is just outstanding but i agree Pliskova does seem to be the safe bet my elo algorithm certainly seems to agree with that giving her a better shot than anyone else in the top half including Spitalina um Personally, and partly just to offer a different pick, I would have to go with whoever wins this Spitalina Keys fourth rounder. Uh, I agree that, based on what we've seen so far, Pliskova is better at everything, all the same stuff that Keys does, but it seems like Keys has been poised for a breakthrough for a while. She had that great tournament in Stanford earlier this this summer. It seems like if she's going to have a, a big slam one of these days and announce herself as a as, as a bigger-time player, it would be at the U.S. Open. So I can see her coming through. I would like to see Spitalina coming through. I'm not sure if I can actually see her making the final, but just for the sake of, of, of being different, I'll go with the winner of that match as, as my top-half finalist. And if you had to pick one name, Carl, before we leave the women's draw behind us, who do you think your your U.S. Open champion is? Well, this is more heart than brain, although not by much. But I would take the winner of Venus Kvitova. And just based on Kvitova still being fairly early in her comeback and Venus having made two slam finals, I'm going to take Venus Williams. And I, I think I took her at the beginning of the tournament, although I said a lot of dumb things at the beginning of the tournament. Well, that's what beginnings of tournaments are for. Um, unfortunately, yep. for unfortunately for you your pick is going to lose to my pick, Anastasia Savasova, in the semifinal in route to the title. So, You're joking. Um, no, she's my pick. Okay, I, I'm um, a big Savasova fan, and I, it's it's plausible. Yep, I love Savasova. The only the only sad thing about being a, a fan of hers is that I always seem to watch her playing Halep, and she, she can't beat Halep, which doesn't really bode well for, for winning a slam, but she doesn't have to beat Halep to win a slam. She beat Sharapova, so... What the hell? Sevastova for the win. So, in our limited time remaining, let's switch over to the men's draw. And just to, to give this a nickname, the men's draw is called People Who Will Lose to Diego Schwartzman while Diego Schwartzman wins the U.S. Open. Um, do you, do Wait, you so Schwartzman is like, also going to lose to Schwartzman? It's, it's confusing. We'll work on the name. We'll, we'll workshop it. Yeah, we'll work on the name. Um, I'm really looking forward to the all-Argentinian final between Del Potro and Schwartzman. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about you, that, too. It would be amazing. Do you agree or disagree with my picks, Carl? Um, I, again, even though we, we both have our occasional Federer proclivities, I think both of our hearts would pick Diego, but I'm not going to let that go so far as to actually have my brain pick him. Um, I, I actually think Query comes out of that half. I mean, I, this could also be recency bias against Vera, but he is by far the most slam accomplished in one half of a Grand Slam draw, which you should pause to think about how, how wild that is. And in the other half, I, I can make cases for just about anyone, but I think I'm going to take Federer just based on that he has beaten Nadal the last four times they've played all in hard courts that Cole Schreiber he's beaten every time they face they've played although I think this could be the closest one yet um by small margin I take Federer and then Federer query I would favor Federer but yeah I could I could see a case for most men left in the draw to win the tournament even Diego Schwartzman because he could certainly beat any of Carreño Busta Query or Anderson and once you're in the final who knows yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially getting to the final. Like the, in, in all seriousness, I, I do have a hard time imagining him beating Federer or Nadal in a slam final. Although on hard courts, I can see him pushing Nadal. I don't know, but not Federer. 
Um, but I, I'm actually about halfway through charting the Schwartzman-Chillich match, and Chillich wasn't playing badly. I mean, he, he, he made a few kind of ugly mistakes, but Schwartzman just somehow managed to outplay Marin Chilich on hard court, which, you know, if you'd told me that going into the tournament, that Diego Schwartzman was going to win a best-of-five match against a player like Chilich, I mean, I'm as big a Diego Schwartzman fan as you will find outside of Argentina, and I wouldn't have believed you. Maybe not as but, big in height, but yes, as big in heart, for sure. Yep, as big in heart. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I look forward to your charting because Ben Rothenberg tweeted some of the shocking official stats, including that Chilich hit 35 backhand unforced win errors and one backhand winner, and his backhand usually, I think, is a great shot. So I've found the U.S. Open to be so accurate that maybe they're even not accurate and harsh on players. I look forward to your count. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was pretty extreme, if not quite that extreme, just because... I've been shocked going through this match so far at, at how long some of the rallies are. I mean, I, I've watched my share of Chillage matches, and you'll have some matches where not a single point goes past eight or nine shots. And it seems like there is just 12, 15-shot rallies, not one after another. I mean, there's still plenty of aces and unreturned serves on both sides of the ball. But it, for Chillage, he's having to work really, really hard. And yes, he's making mistakes, but in a normal Chilich match, if he's racking up that many backhand unforced errors, that means it's a huge percentage of his backhands. But playing Schwartzman, like, that might be his sixth backhand of the point. And, Great point. You know, one of those backhands might have been a near winner that Schwartzman managed to dig out. Uh, I mean, I, I've seen multiple points already where Schwartzman dug out an overhead or two and came out and came back and won the point. That's stuff that people don't do against Marin Cilic most of the time. He just doesn't have to face opponents like that. And that's really Schwartzman's path to winning, is playing these guys in a way that they don't have an answer to. And you can certainly see him beating Query or Anderson that way if he managed to beat Cilic. I think the schwartzman Carino busta match is going to be fascinating, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense for a, a U.S. Open quarterfinal. Uh, yeah, this certainly could he, be Carino Busta's tournament to break out. You could say he already has. <laughs> Yeah, it, 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 it's a big breakthrough for him as well. And he is. On and he paper, started the year maybe. so well on U.S. hard courts. I was really impressed and thought he'd be potentially in the top 10 by now. And he's got to be close after this, doesn't he? Well, and, you know, this the whole ATP ranking situation is so weird because there are a bunch of guys ahead of these players who are likely to not play another match this year, so it's hard to know how to count them. Uh, in the live rankings, he's at 13. And he's only a few hundred points behind Raonic at 10. And if he wins his next match, at least in the live rankings, he'll be at number 10. So, yeah, he will get there. Yeah, so not only is he number 10, but at that point he's playing in London, right? Pretty much, yeah. And Query is in good London position too, which is which is kind of shocking. I mean, he's not a young player breaking through. I had a, a friend recently ask me, oh, Query, is he like an up-and-coming young American? I think during Wimbledon. I said, no, he's 29. Carino Busta is actually <laughs> already 26, which surprises me. So, yeah, these are not these are not spring chickens. These are not Zverev's and, and Shapovalov's. Yeah, Carino Busta is kind of the uh, the lost player of the lost generation. <laughs> yes, he's a, yes. Because people don't talk about him as much with Ronich and Dimitrov and Nishikori, but back in the day, he was that big of a prospect. I mean, there's a guy on Twitter who always jokes that he's the, the future of Spanish tennis because people were saying that about him, I don't mm -hmm. know, six or eight years ago. And it still kind of looks true, just by the aging of the rest of Spanish tennis. 
Spanish men's yeah. tennis, not not Muguruza. Um, yeah, and it's it's also worth um, it's you know it's it's worth pointing out that another somewhat forgotten among the forgotten of the forgotten generation is David Goffin, also still in the draw despite the injury at the French Open, has had a good year and and he could break through. I c- I could see him beating Nadal. Yeah, that's possible, and that'll be an interesting match with Rublev because I mean Rublev's having a bit of a breakthrough himself this season, mm-hmm. so lots of lots of good stuff in the next couple of days of tennis. I hope your listeners out there are listening before these matches, so we don't sound too idiotic talking about these great matches that ended six three six one six love. <laughs> but I guess that is the risk of recording a podcast when tennis is starting in about forty five minutes at this point. But Carl, finally, just to wrap up. I guess we've we've sort of said these things, but let's just get on the record. Your your finals and winner pick for the men. Federer over Quarry. Okay, and my pick, of course, is Schwartzman over Federer. <laughs> um, so I like how your picks always make mockeries of the ideas of making picks. That's that's how they should be made. I, I'm just I'm disappointed glad. we're not going to have a Lorenzi Schwartzman semi, which we really almost had. I know. I'm I'm really disappointed because, as you know, Carl, I'm not the biggest Kevin Anderson fan. And one of the disadvantages of spending so much time in South Africa is that whenever there's tennis on TV, if Kevin Anderson is on court, that means the tennis is Kevin Anderson. And it often is not the match I would choose to watch. At one point when I was in a hotel in Swaziland, I had literally one channel, uh, and that channel was showing Kevin Anderson versus Yuki Bombri from Washington. Um, which is quite a programming choice if you're thinking of, of everything else you could put on television. Um, all of which is to say, yes, I also wish we could have had a Lorenzi Schwartzman semifinal at the U.S. Open. So, as I mentioned earlier, Carl and I are going to try to do a, a, a second episode this week before the men's semifinals on Friday, so keep a lookout for that. Um, now that I'm... I'm I'm back in contact with the world. I'm hoping to have some some more posts up on the Tennis Abstract blog, and I should have a couple other things on the Economist Game Theory, Theory blog as well, maybe as early as, as today, Monday. So I hope you enjoy the tennis. Carl, thank you for joining me. Thanks for returning um, and restarting the pod. It's fun. Absolutely. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you in a few days.